Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the DC multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Seal. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Now, today we are looking at issue 167 of The Flash, which was published on the 6th of December, 1966, with a cover date of February 1967, a mere four days before the final episode of Patrick Troughton's first story as Doctor Who, <laughs> if that even remotely interests you. It, it remotely interested Peter, because his eyebrows just <laughs> moved slightly. It's an interesting one, Flash 167. When Peter first suggested it, I resisted very strongly. I was, I really had to have my arm twisted. I couldn't see why we were doing this one at all. But then in my preparation, I noticed one single panel, which I will highlight when we get to it, and I thought, all right, shut up, Davey. <laughs> <laughs> this is ample justification for doing it in a podcast. Peter, would you like to tell the listeners why we're doing issue 167 of The Flash? Yes, well, this is a very controversial issue of The Flash. It's quite famous, or infamous, I should say. Because the story is called The Real Origin of the Flash. Mm. And it gives us what is ostensibly the new retconned real origin of the Flash. Which is not what we thought it was all along. This story is so reviled in fandom that it actually has been allocated a different Earth to Earth 1. <laughs> in the Crisis Infinite Earths Companion it lists it as Earth 32 that this takes place on. Which means that's basically an Earth that uh, any story they can't really make fit. They base it on Earth-32, kind of like Bob Haney's Earth-B concept, although that's really between Earths, but we'll get into that much later on. But yes, this is very, very controversial, but still a lot of fun. Yeah, we're using the Crisis and Infinite Earths Companion, which is a sort of supplementary volume published with the absolute edition of Crisis and Infinite Earths by DC. Uh We're using that as a sort of secondary source I mean, it was useful when we were doing a prep because we we checked every single story that it listed because you, you'll have noticed as, as we're doing this, we're not doing imaginary stories. No. The Crisis Companion was quite happy to allocate Earth numbers to, to a lot of the imaginary stories and we sort of thought, if we do all the imaginary stories, we'll be here for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we might do some eventually. There's yeah. a couple of really good stories along the way, like Superman Red, Superman Blue is one of the best stories ever. If it had been flagged up as taking place in a parallel universe, we would have done it. We're not using it as a strict source. We're using it more as a secondary source. And it's interesting because, the, as you say, it allocates this Flash 167 story to um, Earth 32, which is also the Earth they give to the story where we met the other Hal Jordan way back in the Green Lantern's yes. Wedding Day episode. One of the one of the best episodes we've ever done, actually. <laughs> that sounds very immodest because it's not like we wrote the story. But we really both really enjoyed doing that, that episode, so you should check it out if you haven't done already. Yeah. It's interesting because it's basically the Crisis Companion, as Pete says, uses it as the earth for any story that doesn't really yeah. quite fit mm-hmm. into how things should be. As I say, I was a bit, hmm, when Peter used all this justification. But as I say, there is one panel in the story which made me go, oh, right, okay, yeah, we need to do it. <laughs> I was all set for a massive moan all the way and complain all the way through this episode, but it's not going to happen. Good. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, now that all that's out of the way, shall we, shall we crack on? Pete, see, do you want to tell us about the gorgeous Carmen Infantino cover? Yes, and as it's a Carmen Infantino flash cover, it's outstanding. Again, 1966, so we've got the fantastic Google checks right at the top. Mm-hmm. And underneath, the bit that tells us about the new kid flash story, that's the backup story that we're not covering in this issue, We've got the Flash logo, and 
someone is holding a newspaper. It's the Picture News, the paper that Iris works for, mm-hmm. and it's dated Friday, December the 9th, 1966. Yeah, and I checked, the 9th of December was a Friday in 1966. Ah, oh, So that's quite interesting. And the headline of the Picture News says, Position Wanted, Male, For Hire, One Unemployed Superhero, Available Night and Day. Must begin immediately. Have wife to support. <laughs> and every one of those lines has got an exclamation mark at the end of it. And right beside it, you have a picture in glorious black and white of Barry Allen, the Flash. There we are. And at the bottom, there's a banner that says, Story Scoop of the Year, the real origin of the Flash. The grey tone sort of shading on on Barry there is stunning. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. It's a very stark, very simple cover, but it, mm-hmm. the longer you look at it, the the better it gets. It's, it's terrific. It's beautiful. I do like the style of comic cover that uses, you know, either a page from a magazine or a newspaper headline. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've managed to scrape a few together to put a gallery on the socials of a few sort of modern comics that do that, so keep your eyes peeled for that, listeners. A lot of Flash covers show more promise than the story can ever live up to. Mm-hmm. The Flash covers are always so consistently strong, and this one's no exception. absolutely. Fantastic. Right, so shall we jump in? Yes, let's do that. We have an opening splash panel, which shows the Flash hauling himself out of the water at the docks. I'm not really sure what you call that sort of thing that the rope is tied around that you would secure your boat against. But anyway, Barry's leaning on one of those in his Flash costume, and he's gazing down at a very... How do we describe this person? Dwarf-like wizard with Harry Potter-style glasses who's got balding ginger hair. Yeah, that's fair. He was a green cloak, laced up at the front. He has a sort of a hood or a collar. Very wide open sleeves hanging around his wrist. It looks like he's too small for it, basically. Yes. There's a gorgeous full moon in the background, which makes me think it was maybe taking place in the same earth as all those Murphy Anderson comics we read <laughs> recently. There's a fair bit of text. We have the Flash logo. And there's a little, now trademark, Carmine Hand caption box. And the little hand is pointing down at this very dweebish-looking wizard. And the Carmine Hand caption box says, Who is this odd little character with the two big spectacles? You're going to get the shock surprise of your life when you find out. And there's a much larger story setup caption box, which says, The story of how Flash originally gained his super speed is well known to long-time readers of this mag. Now, it's high time newer Flash fans were told how it all happened. Only this time, we're going to reveal <laughs> the, the real, real origin, origin of, of the, the Flash! Flash. Exclamation mark. So yeah, so Barry's leaning on this little pole, for want of a better way of putting it, looking down at this dweebish character. We didn't mention the wand that he's carrying. He's no. carrying a wand, and he's got little open-toed sandals. And this chap is saying to the Flash, My sincerest apologies, Flash. But I'm obliged to deprive you of your super speed. You received it as a result of a horrible mistake. And we have a little caption box which tells us this story was written by Gardner Fox and the art by Carmine Infantino and Sid Green. Sid Green who did an excellent job on that Justice League crossover we did a month or two ago. Absolutely, yes. Over the page to page two, the caption for the first panel says... As moonlight silvers the central city waterfront, a man stands quietly in the shadows. The man in the shadows is Barry Allen the Flash, in his costume as the Flash, and he's observing three rather shady characters who are walking along the docks towards him. The Flash is thinking, Here's where I capture those jewel smugglers I've been after for so long. Panel 2, the Flash rushes forward to tackle the baddies, and he's thinking, 
Tonight they're smuggling in the heart diamonds. The first of the bad guys, who wears a brown jacket, brown trousers, a little grey flat cap, he spots the flash and he says, We're sunk! Here comes the flash! The next panel, Barry strikes the baddie, sending him spinning. The baddie cries, Yay! Barry thinks to himself, Three smugglers on the run, but this one will stay put, spinning in his tracks like a top. With a whoop, Barry says, Tag, you're it! And then, Ugh! From one of the smugglers, as Barry strikes one of them, who's wearing a green jacket, who goes flying into the other one, who's wearing a blue jumper. Barry then grabs the guy in the green jacket and flings him up in the air, saying, Stay up there, pal. You're about to have company. First panel, page three. With a whack, Barry punches blue jumper smuggler, who must obviously lift up the ground, and he collides with the green jacket smuggler, who's falling back down. Um, it looks really, really painful. <laughs> yes. Barry rushes forward to catch the green jacket guy, because the blue jumper guy is now down on the ground. And the Flash says, Here's where I save the fall guy. Panel three, he's grabbed that other bad guy and he's now swinging him around his head. Very strong, the Flash. Yes. Barry is saying, Now to wind this caper up in whirlwind action. Terrific, very dynamic, very action-packed, I love it. However, the caption for panel four says, Suddenly! This is incredible. Barry throws the green-jacketed smuggler up into the air. We can see a full moon, it's gorgeous. But the Flash, it looks like he's burst into flames. Barry's thinking, Ah, uh, my uniform, catching fire. What's happened to my protective body aura? It's no longer safeguarding me from the friction caused by super speed. And in the next panel, the final panel of page three, we see the Flash running towards the water, trying to pat out the flames that have burst out over his arms and shoulders. And he's thinking, I'm burning up. That crook I was whirling around isn't feeling as hot as I am. The lucky stiff, because it was my body generating all that speed energy. Already at the top of page four, and again with a full moon, we see the Flash, still on fire, dive into the water, dive into the sea. And he's thinking, This is as good a way as any to douse these flames. Let's talk about that. That's pretty horrible, isn't it? To suddenly catch fire, yes. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> oh. I mean, it's one thing I've always liked, is that the, the friction, protection, aura sort of thing. Uh -huh. I think there's a couple of other covers over the years where they play on that. Mm -hmm. Barry's on fire because he's lost the aura. Yeah. It's a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. Real jeopardy. Anyway, panel two then, page four, has a caption. And it says... Dripping wet, but cool and relieved, the Scarlet Speedster climbs upward from the harbour waters. We see Barry pulling himself out of the water, and the little green wizard guy who we saw in the splash panel is standing waiting for him. You can see the, the wide collar of his robes, the sleeves, his little sandaled toe picking out, and his bald spot with a little tuft of hair on top curling round. And he's saying, Sorry I had to do that, Barry Allen, but removing your aura was my first necessary step in taking away your super speed. The Flash says, Huh? You know I'm really Barry Allen? How? My, my, that's quite a flashy costume you have there. A lightning symbol to note speed. Very appropriate for someone who masquerades as the Flash, the, the fastest man alive. Barry is thinking, Whew. Lucky the waterfront is deserted at this time of night. Otherwise the whole world would know of my secret identity. Who is this know-it-all, anyhow? And the next panel, as he adjusts his glasses, this new interloper is offering Barry a business card. And he's saying, The, the name's Mopey. Um, initiate 10th class of the Heavenly Helpmates. Off panel, Barry says. Then you're responsible for removing my aura, but why'd you want to do that? Well, I have every right to, after all. I'm the one who gave you your speed and your aura. You're out of your alien mind, Mopey. By chance, a lightning bolt blasted into some chemicals in my police department laboratory. They spilled over me and gave me my super speed. <laughs> Nonsense. The odds against that happening are ten quadrillion billion to one. We're now at the top of page five. 
I'm enjoying the character work as he constantly fiddles with his glasses. Yes. And they're hanging off his face. It's very amusing. Quite endearing. Yeah. It's almost Mad Magazine-esque. <laughs> yeah, he does look like Alfred E. Newman. Yes. Alfred E. Newman, if he was like 30 years older and his hair had started falling out. <laughs> so with a little wave of his index finger in the air, Mopey starts to tell Barry a story at the top of page five. You don't really believe that was the way it really happened? A scientist like you? I deliberately brought down that lightning bolt after I checked you out to receive the gift of super speed. You're entitled to know how this happened to you. After I qualified for initiate 10th class, I appeared before my superiors. And there's a sort of wiggle to the border of the next panel. It's a flashback, obviously, to Mopey in front of his superiors. And the first superior is saying to him, Your first assignment is to select a man of Earth to receive the gift of super speed. And the second superior says, But be careful. Choose a man worthy of the gift. We should say the next few panels have a little insert drawing of Mopey as he tells the Flash what had happened. So he continues. You seem like a nice enough fellow. Honest, brave, sincere. And this panel shows Mopey looking in the window of Barry's laboratory. We can see Barry with a test tube. Mopey is looking through the window. A great shot again of the back of his head <laughs> and his hair combed round and forward. It's a vanity buster. I hope that Mopey went straight for the clippers after seeing this. Mopey is thinking, a perfect choice. This will be easy as ABZ or is it ABC? I was never very good at languages. The next panel shows Mopey gesturing and a flash of lightning coming out of his hand. With a zakow, it flashes through the window of Barry's laboratory. Mopey is saying, I gathered that lightning bolt down out of the sky and into your police department lab as pete as you please. Um, would you believe? Need as you please. And then this little flashback image, as the lightning bolt strikes the glass, Mopey is thinking, there, <laughs> that'll make him faster than lightning itself. Now to return home and file my report. Mission accomplished successfully. And then Mopey narrates as he's back with his superiors. Unfortunately, I got a bit mixed up on my return journey and <laughs> it was some years before I stood once more before my superiors. And we can see Mopey, it looks like he's in the dock almost, facing up to the superiors. And the superiors are basically older men, thick white hair, long thick beards, wearing blue robes. And the superior is saying to Mopey, Initiates, you're years late! Not only that, but your report shows you made a very serious error. Uh, I, d I, d I did? And I thought I was so careful to follow the rules. We arrive at the top of page six, and the superior says, Our rules and regulations for gifting people of the planet clearly state that any object used by the initiate to confer that gift must be owned by the giftee. And Mopey looks rattled here, the sweat is pouring from his face and he's all a flutter, he's all looks very shaking almost, he looks very nervous and he says, Uh-oh, Barry Allen didn't own those chemicals, the police department did. As they say on Earth, I goofed. The superior continues in the next panel. Now get back there to Earth at once and undo what you've done. We cannot permit an illegal act to stand. Yeah, yes, yes, sir. Right away, sir. And that's the last panel to have the little ripple effect as we return to Mopey and the Flash standing by the docks with a full moon in the background. Mopey's standing with his wand in his hand and he's saying to the Flash, So now you understand why I'm obliged to take away your speed just as I did your aura? Flash says, What? You mean I won't be the Flash anymore? Hmm, you know, that might not be a bad idea at that. 
I could go back to leading a normal life. And then, to close out this opening chapter, we have a carmine hand panel. The hand is sort of raised as if to stop us, and it says, Not so fast, Flash. You better give this some serious thought. The story continues in fifth page following. Fifth page following, indeed. The rest of that page is rounded out with an advertisement for an issue of Brave and the Bold with Batman and Hawkman. The opposite page has an advertisement for an 80-page giant issue of Our Army at War, presenting Sergeant Rock's six battle stars, which includes Jeb Stewart, Captain Cloud, and Gunner and Sarge, and obviously Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. They will all pop up in the podcast eventually. Over the page, mm-hmm. there's the letters page for the issue. An advertisement for the next issue of Batman, featuring the Scarecrow. That's the Silver Age debut of the Scarecrow, that issue. Is it? Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have that issue? Yes. Is it in good nick? Uh, not hugely, though. No. It's uh, a good reader's copy. You should still stick it on eBay and sell it. I don't sell things. I know. Uh, it's just me that does that. <laughs> Recently, listeners off the back of really, really, really enjoying the, the House of Mystery <laughs> Dial H for Hero story we did a few episodes ago now. I've been trying to acquire cheaply issues of House of Mystery featuring Robbie Reed and Dial H for Hero, despite the fact that many, many years ago, I had practically a full set and I got rid of them. <laughs> I didn't even own them the first time around when they were first published, but I'm now trying to get a full set for the second time. The rest of the page with the Batman house ad is rounded out with a little public service cartoon warning about the dangers of skating on thin ice. And that's been drawn by Henry Boltonoff. I like the kids' little Charlie Brown style jumper. Anyway... <laughs> Over the page again, but before we arrive at part two of our story, there's a full-page public service advertisement which has the heading Peace on Earth. The alphabet and the language may be different, but the same sentiment dwells in the hearts and minds of men all over the world. And this is really nice, actually, Mm -hmm. because there's about 30-odd little caption boxes. In the middle, in English, there's one that says Peace on Earth, and then around them we have languages including Hebrew, Swahili, Romanian, Hungarian, Spanish all reiterating that same message. It's lovely, isn't it? Yes, very 1966. (laughs) It is, yeah. So, we arrive at the top of page seven, and a caption that says, The The Real Real Origin Origin of the Flash, Part Two. And the first panel's very dramatic shot of Barry Allen the Flash, as he continues to think through the implications of no longer being the Flash if Mopey has to remove his powers. Barry says... It would solve my problem whether or not to tell Iris that the Flash and her husband Barry Allen are one and the same person. But on the other hand, if it weren't for the Flash, who would have captured the Mirror Master, Captain Cold, and the rest of Flash's rogues gallery? So after that nice little inset panel of Barry, the rest of this panel was rendered out with a shot of the Flash zooming, carrying what looks like a giant test tube, with Iris West inside it, and a little headshot caption of Barry tells us, I might never again get the chance to save my wife, who was Iris West in those days, when I broke through the time barrier. Well, there's a little asterisk to another caption box, footnote, which says, Showcase 14, Giants of the Time World. Then the next panel has a caption that says, Nor could I help save the Earth itself, as happened when Flash of Earth 2 and I battled Vandal Savage. That's quite a nice panel, actually, because it revisits the third Barry and Jay team-up. Yes. And there's a little caption which says, Flash 137, Vengeance of the Immortal Villain. Yep, we can see Barry and Jay punching each other in the jaw and Vandal Savage jumping about in the background having a rare time. And this is the panel that made me think, actually, yeah, we have to cover this because, listeners, this is the only appearance of Jay Garrick in a comic in 1966. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? I'm relieved, actually, because <laughs> we haven't seen Jay for a long time. We haven't seen him since the 1965 JLA-JSA team-up. And, uh-huh. you know, and 
the last time that the two flashes teamed up was issue 151 of the flash which was way way before that mm-hmm. that's a nice little useful trivial pursuit point for you there listeners <laughs> that jay garrick's only appearance in 1966 which has had, had a flurry of golden age dc character at- yeah. activity jay's only appearance is in flashback Jay, the hero who kick-started the multiverse revolution with his appearance in Flash 1, 2, 3, despite the fact, that, as we know, that he wasn't the first returning Golden Age character or indeed the first alternate version of a character to be seen. He doesn't make any new appearances in 1966. I think that's insane. <laughs> and also, Jay, whose comic Barry was reading in Showcase 4 when he first appeared. Ah, yes. Perhaps Moppy was reading Jay's adventures over Barry's shoulder. He could have been. (laughs) And that inspired him, perhaps. Yeah, it gave him the idea. It seems crazy because since the last time we saw Jay, we've had a couple of Green Lantern Uh team-ups. There's been some, you know, the Brave and Bold issues with Starman and Black Canary, and it's been a really, really enjoyable JSA, JLA crossover. Of course, it was the first JLA, JSA crossover that Jay didn't feature in. It's Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Anyway, we should get back to the point. This has been the Jay Garrick interlude. (laughs) We're now back with Barry and Mopey, obviously, presumably, still standing at the dockside. Barry continues... No, I can't give all that up. I mustn't let my personal problem about telling Iris my secret identity interfere with my keeping this priceless gift. So let's make a deal. No deals. The law's the law. Well, maybe there's a different law to cover my situation. Mopey has his hand up to his head, playing with what's left of his hair, and he says, You think so? Could be. Look in your rules and regulations. See if there's a section to cover it. Since you're innocent of any wrongdoing, and inasmuch as all this is more or less my fault... More or less? We arrive at the top of page eight. Barry's sat down perched, and Mopey is now sat on the ground, looking very unhappy, it must be said. Mopey now has a book in front of him, which he's rifling through. It must be all the rules and the laws, etc., because he's saying, I'll just check and... My, my. How about that? What's it say? Stop stalling. Uh, I quote... In the event of any mistake, an initiate may repeat the experiment under certain conditions. See subsection 2Y546LKM984. And the Flash says excitedly, Go on, go on. Most amazing. It seems that if you should purchase the very chemicals that contributed to your super speed, you'll be legally entitled to your gift. See how easy my problem is solved? I'll buy... Uh Uh-uh. According to this, you're required to earn the money as the Flash. Moreover... You have exactly 24 hours in which to do it. But, but, I've never accepted money for the feats I do as the Flash. Stop being so conscientious. Do you want to keep your super speed on that? All right, all right. How much money will I need? Oh, I was never very good at high finance. You figure it out. Quite frankly, you don't seem to be very good at anything. But at current prices, I'd say I need... $94.36. Lend me a pad and pencil. The next panel's a cracker, because again there's another full moon being reflected across the waters of the harbour. Very, very striking. Mopey is sat on the dock. We can see there's a patch on the back of his cloak, which we hadn't seen before. I wonder <laughs> if it's a bit of a hand-me-down. I'm actually starting to warm to Mopey. <laughs> be interesting to see how that compares to the rest of the reader reaction. Barry is now perched on that whatever it is that you tie your ropes round, and we can see that he's writing down on the pad with his pencil, and the flash is saying... I'll insert an ad in tomorrow's paper. I can just make the morning edition before they put it to bed, if I hurry. But first, give me back my protective aura. That's fair enough, but what's that you're writing? Next panel shows Flash holding up the piece of paper that he's been scribbling on. Mopey looks very thoughtful. The Flash says, For hire, one superhero, 
services available day or night. Must begin work immediately. And Mopey with his finger up to his chin is thinking. That's not nearly strong enough. I'll secretly add a touch myself later. After all, I feel sorry for the Flash. He's a victim of my mistake. We arrive at the top of page nine. And so, next day, prominently displayed in every newspaper of Central City. And we see a replication of the cover image. It's not as exactly the same as the cover. Quite often you would see images and panels in those days that look very, very close to the cover. But it's a hand holding a newspaper. We can see the advertisement. The picture news, Friday, December the 9th. Position wanted mail for hire one unemployed superhero. Available night and day. Must begin immediately. Have wife to support. And the caption saying The Flash under a photograph of The Flash. So Moppy's punch-up of the advert is added in unemployed to the superhero bit <laughs> yes. and they have wife to support bit at the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's his idea of punching it up. <laughs> yeah, and the, the remainder of this panel has a caption that says... The telegrams pour in to the indicated box number. And this is outstanding. I mean, we've made the reference to, to Mad Magazine already. This looks like a Mad Magazine cartoon yes. in need of a caption. We see Barry and Mopey from behind standing regarding a massive, huge pile of telegrams and envelopes and paper. It's insane. <laughs> There's a real heightened sense to the story at this point. Uh-huh. It's very easy to believe now at this point this is not taking place on the regular Earth. It's a, a level of ridiculousness. Yeah, I mean, occasion, you'll get the occasional Flash story where it's a little bit out there, but this is way beyond. I mean, even Barry seems to be behaving completely out of character. Anyway, so, a huge pile of paper behind a broken fence, and there's a wonderful little lamppost with some street signs on it. It's a lovely, cute little panel. So as they behold this huge, whopping pile of correspondence, the Flash says... Whew. Where do we start? Even with my super speed, it'll take precious minutes to select a worthy cause. And Moppy says, I'll select a telegram. The rules so state. The next panel shows Moppy in the flash, sat in amongst the pile of telegrams. Moppy has one in his hand and he's reading and it says, Here we are. This request for your services comes from Peter Norman, plastics manufacturer. He's overextended himself. He has hundreds of deliveries to make all across the country. And his deadline is today. Crouching behind him, Barry says, Just the same as mine. Okay, I'm off to earn my chemicals. The caption for the next panel. In the plastics factory, seconds afterward. And we see the Flash standing talking to who is presumably Peter Norman. There's lots and lots of boxes piled up all around them. Various shapes and sizes and different colours. And Peter Norman is saying to the Flash, You only want $94.36 for your services? But Flash, that's too little to pay for such a tremendous job. I wouldn't feel right. Flash replies, I wouldn't even accept that amount if I didn't have uh, a special use for it. Now let's stop talking and let me get going. The next panel is an aerial shot of the United States of America showing the Flash zigzagging all over the place and a lengthy caption box that says, Back and forth across the country from the sunny shores of California to the rock-ribbed coast of Maine, from the forest lands of Minnesota to the Texas cattle ranches speeds the fastest man on earth. Accompanied... By his benefactor, Moppy. Over the page to page 10, I realise at this point that we're both pronouncing Moppy, Moppy differently, but not to worry. So, the caption for the first panel on page 10 says, Until only one package remains to be delivered. And this shows the Flash zooming out of Norman Plastic Company. Moppy's flying along above him. As the Flash zooms out, he says, This package goes to a suburb here in Central City, which is why I saved it for the last. And Moppy says, Oh, there he goes again. 
It's killing my digestion going around the country with Flash. He never seems to rest. The caption for the next panel. Halfway to the outskirts of town, however. Uh-oh. The Flash is bursting into flames again. And he says, My aura's slipping and I'm burning up again. Moppy, what? Moppy is flying along behind him. And he says, <laughs> Now give me a chance to catch my breath, Flash. You do get about, you know. You can see Moppy gesturing with his wand. And Barry is patting out the flames from his arm. We can also see that the box that the Flash was carrying from Norman Plastic has also caught fire. Mopey is saying, Oh my goodness, I goofed again. But I'll jix things in a fiffy. Oh, I mean, what do I mean? The Flash says, That blazing package. Look what's inside it. The next panel has a bit of a ripple effect because it's a flashback to the smugglers who we met at the start of the story. The caption says, Some hours before, as the diamond smugglers raced away from Flash when he lost his protective aura. So we see the three smugglers. Blue jumper guy, brown jacket guy and green jacket guy hiding out at the docks. Blue jumper guy says, Where's the Flash? Why ain't he chasing us? He must know we have the heart diamonds. Green jacket guy says, He was whipping me around until my clothes got so hot they started to burn. Then he went and jumped in the river. But why? And then the good in the brown jacket says, I'll tell you why. He's going to trail us to learn where the boss is his hideout. Blue jumper bad guy says, We can't let him find the boss. We can't have both the boss and Flash mad at us. And the guy in the green jacket says, But what are we going to do? The next panel shows blue jumper guy and brown jacket guy opening a door. Blue jumper guy says, In here, quick. It's some sort of plastics place. And the guy in the brown jacket says, They got a lot of packages all set here, ready to be delivered. Say, I'm getting an idea. The top of page 11, the first panel shows the three smugglers, and blue jumper guy says, We'll hide the heart diamonds inside one of these plastic ornaments. Put it in a package, address it to the boss on the outskirts of town, then beat it. Ah. He's holding one of the plastic ornaments. It looks like a sort of statue of a male figure that's sort of crouching down. It's very interesting. Mm. Mustachioed brown jumper guy says, a great idea. So even if Flash does follow us, he'll never find the heart diamonds or the boss. The caption for the next panel says, Strange are the ways of fate, destiny, kismet. For as those flames eat away the plastic ornament, they leave revealed... Yeah, we're back with the Flash and Moppy, as the burning box has burnt off to reveal, as the Flash says, The heart diamonds. I don't know how they got in here unless... Peter Norman is using me as a dupe, but I sure know where they're going. And Moppy, while staring at the diamonds, comments, Diamonds don't burn in any ordinary fire like that one. Even I know that. The caption for the next panel says, With the heart diamonds tucked away safely in his costume, the Scarlet Speedster meets his delivery deadline. This is the Flash taking the diamonds to the boss's address. This panel shows him bursting through a door, arms whirlwinding around, and there are four figures here. The smugglers who we met earlier on, presumably one of them might be their boss. Anyway, Green Jacket Guy exclaims as the Flash bursts through the door, Ha! The Flash! The caption for the next panel says, As his windmilling arms generate a dozen times the power of a Kansas cyclone. And with flops and clonks and whoops, all the bad guys go flying into the wall. This is a great panel of the Flash in action. Right arm, widow winding around. The Flash is thinking, I'm not at all sure the protective aura Moppy gave me again will stay put. But I'm going to put it to the test. The caption for the next panel. Upside down, seemingly helpless in the high wind that slams him to the wall. One gangster manages to free his gun and... With a blam, he fires his gun at the Flash. 
Flash is still whirlwinding his arms and thinks, And here it comes. I've got to move at real super speed to vibrate fast enough for that bullet to go through me without harming my body. Over the page, top of page 12, and we have a sequence of panels showing the flash vibrating. The caption for the first panel says, Faster vibrates the flash. Faster, faster, until the bullet seems to crawl toward its targets. We see Barry standing, vibrating furiously, and the bullet slowly moving towards his chest. Obviously, it's Barry's point of view. Barry is thinking, Will I be able to do this as once I used to do? The caption for the next panel says, It hits the monarch of motion. Yep, we see the bullet moving closer to him, and Barry's thinking, Now it's touching me, starting to go in. The caption for the next panel, There is one tense, fearful moment. Barry's thinking, I can't relax at this speed. If the aura is removed, I'll fly apart like a machine out of control. And then the caption for the next panel says, then the bullet is through him, and the Sultan of Super Speed can slow his incredibly swift vibrations. I feel a bit relieved, actually. We yeah. see the bullet passing through the flash, and Barry thinks, It worked fine. I'm myself again. We arrive at the bottom of page 12, and a caption that says, Then... And we see the flash speeding past the bad guys who are all still pressed up against the wall with a whacker and a zock and a thud. He thumps them all and says... I never did catch the crooks who got away from me last night. As soon as I finish here... With a flash of energy around Mopey, with his hair flying in the wind, and we can see a great shot of his sandals and a patch on his cloak. With a wave of his wand, Mopey says, Oh, I'll cast them for you, Flash. It's the least I can do for you, after you've been so wonderful about all this. We arrive at the top of page 13, and the caption for the first panel says, After Flash buys the necessary chemicals with his hard-earned money... And we see the Flash and Mopey, presumably in one of the Flash's laboratories. The Flash says, I hope you don't goof up this replay of the experiment that originally gave me my super speed, Moppy. And Moppy says, No fear of that, Flash. Then he thinks, I hope. Mopey gestures with his wand. There's a massive Zakow sound effect caption. And a bolt of lightning strikes. So presumably everything's fine now, because the next panel shows Mopey flying off, saying, I did it! I did it! Now maybe I can be an initiate ninth class. And the Flash, looking out of his window, watches Mopey go, and he says, Mopey, wait! I want to tell you about Wally West, and how he later became Kid Flash. He got his super speed the same way I did. And we close on a very Gil Kane-looking panel of Barry Flash looking very thoughtful, and he says, Mopey couldn't have given Kid Flash his super speed. He said he hadn't been back to Earth since his first visits. Then is it possible, despite the incredible odds against it, that Kid Flash did indeed gain his super speed by accident? The, the end. end. Well, it's a very interesting note to end it on. It's almost like they had an afterthought of, yeah. oh, hang on, what about Wally? <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's very Gardner Fox to try and tie up the loose ends. He does try and do that in his stories. But by saying that, it's almost like they're trying to retcon their way out of it within the story. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, we've decided to do this story, which takes everything and throws it out the window completely. And then we've thought, oh, wait a minute, we haven't thought this through. Yeah. It also affects Wally West as well. We probably could have mentioned him earlier. All oh, right, oh, oh, okay, quick, type, 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 draw yeah. this, Carmine, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, that was a nice, inconsequential bit of fluff. Yeah, fun. Definitely a, a nice, fun story. It was good. Controversial, but you know. In our preparation, 
Peter made me aware that the the response to this at the time, the contemporary response, was not positive. Well, it's it's a mixed bag. Let's jump forward to flashgrams from issue one seven one. So lots of exciting reactions to that story in this letters page. And the first letter says, Dear Editor, Wow! Governor Fox sure pulled a fast one on me. I took one look at the cover on the February Flash and thought it was going to be the biggest flopperoo since the Tammy Grimes show. <laughs> Boy, was I ever wrong. The real origin of the Flash was a real surprise. The story cannot be compared to any Mr Fox has ever written. He has the uncanny ability to come up with the right story at the right time. I especially like the use of Moppy. He's undoubtedly one of the <laughs> best supporting characters Flash has ever had. Wow. And that's from Bruce Powers from California. And the response to Bruce's letter is, The real origin of The Flash provoked more mail, with possibly one or two exceptions, than any story to date. As it raved and ranted in equal amounts, so shall the balance of this department. Editor. And the second letter then, Dear Editor, Smart like a fox, eh? Mad is more like it. Gardner Fox must have been mad when he introduced that inept initiate Mopey as the prime mover behind Flash's career, for in doing that, he has robbed this magazine of its uniqueness and its drama. Mopey, the heavenly helpmate, what a name, has made a farce of Flash's origin. Was the human comet born of a freakish burst of raw energy? Elegant irony, sheer accident creating a man with a purpose. Or did Flash arise from the bidding of an unscrutable fate? No. He's the protege of an otherworld Wally Cox, whose superiors are too similar to Green Lantern's guardians to be original. Please forget that heavenly helpmate, otherwise your readers will finally understand why Flash is still called a comic. And that's from Rick Conley. That's actually a really good point, comparing them to the guardians. That's another piece of evidence, perhaps, that uh, this is set on a parallel earth. The fact that there's this alternate to the guardians of the universe here as well. That's an interesting point. I mean, it did remind me of the kind of courtroom scenes from Green Lantern 40, you know, when the Guardians rocked up and uh -huh. the staging of it was very, very similar to that. To be honest, I hadn't even given it as deep a thought as that. Are the superiors the equivalents of the Guardians in the Earth-32 universe? But then, how does that account for Hal Jordan in the Earth-32 universe? So maybe they're not quite exactly the same. But it's an interesting comparison. Maybe they're rivals to each other, you know, the Sharks and the Jets of the Earth-32 universe. Yes, they're the East-17 and take that. <laughs> of our 32 so the next letter goes like this dear editor when i first read about the real origin of the flash and direct currents i figured that this would be a good issue to miss <laughs> i have always hated stories that go back to a hero's origin and make changes in it but when i saw the beautifully shaded cover in flash 167 it tempted me to look through not bad Sid Green's inking made Carmen Infantino's pencils really stand out. Once having bought the book, there was nothing to do but read it. Surprisingly enough, the story was very clever, relying not at all on scientific explanations as a crutch. This is not only good, it is downright unusual. All in all, I am happy to say that despite my low expectations, this was a very successful issue of Flash. And that's from Don Markstein from New Orleans. Interesting. Right then, the next letter says... Dear Editor, Flash 167, oh brother, what a fiasco! When your DC electrician first began announcing a real origin story, I said to myself, good, at last, we will have a bona fide yarn in lieu of that freak Lightning Chemicals mediocre excuse. When I read the new version, I decided that your first account deserved a Pulitzer Prize by comparison. <laughs> Why? Let's take a look at the second interpretation. 
Some idiot is summoned before a court of August Councilman and is informed that he made a mistake in bestowing the gift of super speed on our hero. What a premise! I know that you're trying to introduce humour into your books, but please, let's have some genuine bon moi and not some bovine corn. What saved the issue from being a total disaster was the Kid Flash interlude. It was definitely written and artistically well executed. And that's from Joseph Arrell of New York, New York. Yes, we didn't read the Wally West story, but not to worry. There we are. I'm glad Joe found something to enjoy in it. Yes, it didn't involve any Golden Age superheroes and it didn't involve <laughs> Wally travelling to a parallel universe, no. so we didn't read it. So the next letter is from a future comics professional. Yes. Dear Editor, once again you've broken the rules and have re-originated the Scarlet Speedster. I know a good number of readers will object to your altering Flash's famous origin, especially with such a comedic, fumbling character as Moppy, although this light approach may have bogged down the tension-taut action of the yarn, its stark originality, remember that word, its stark originality made it a hit with me. <laughs> I don't think anyone could argue now that the Flash doesn't have the most unique origin in comicdom. <laughs> good grief. And that's from the person that made me fall in love with Flash comics, Carrie Bates from Dayton, Ohio. Carrie Bates, who worked on about 120 odd issues of The Flash. He wrote, he was on it for years and years and years. Yeah. Carrie Bates will feature in this podcast at some point. <laughs> he does turn up as a character in stories. Yes, he will. It's interesting that he, he responded to it so positively because I can sort of detect the influence of this story on some of his. Uh -huh. His own work. Yeah, because he was known as someone who always had the most original plots, the most interesting plot twists. Mm -hmm. Mr. Surprise, he was referred to as. Ah, Mr. Surprise! <laughs> A close relation of Mr. Terrific, Mr. Fantastic and Mr. Brilliant. Uh-huh. Right. There we are. So, the next letter is from Kenneth Price in Ventura, California, and he says, Dear Editor, Look, your reading public deserves better than the real origin of The Flash. I can just see some prominent fan's letter commending you for the creation of this fantasy character or approving this type of tale, but I don't give a hoot. It's all got to go. This is the silliest thing I've seen in my flash reading yesterday, and if it isn't stopped now, I'm afraid <laughs> such fantasies will start running rampant through what was formerly, to all intents and purposes, a serious magazine. If you think it'll be easy to get back on this trail of the straightforward tale, just look around and you'll see several magazines glutting up the stands which started as superhero fiction but are now marked by stories which now reek of comedy and satire. Very interesting the points he's making there about the increase in humour because obviously when we did the, the JLA JSA team up this year we talked about how the captions and the stylings and the cover yeah. were very reminiscent of the Batman TV series. Uh -huh. In the, the Green Lantern team up in issue 45 we talked about how it was very light, very slight in comparison mm -hmm. to the previous one. The barroom brawl, the, the massive sound effect captions all the way through. Do you Absolutely. think this is a bit of a backlash from people to them trying to follow the, the path of the Batman TV show? It certainly looks that way, yeah. Because one of the things about this story in particular is this character, Moppy, is, for all intents and purposes, magical in nature. Yes. And all of the Flash stories really are rooted in science fiction. And there's not really any... Even Abracadabra, the magician from the future, it's just future tech, to actually have magic as the thing that creates the flash just seems so wrong so wrong you're, you're right it's especially jarring when you consider the almost clinical precision of so much of carmine's artwork in the early barry allen flash stories i mean they look as sleek yeah. and futuristic as his adam strange mm -hmm. stuff you know mm -hmm. i mean the idea of a, a magical little balding bespectacled dwarf does not sit well with as you say and that's the best way of putting it. The hard science fiction that was at the heart yeah. 
of the whole Silver Age because mm-hmm. obviously you know the Silver Age Green Lantern is an alien space policeman with a with a weapon, mm-hmm. not a, a train driver with a magic lantern. Yeah, uh-huh. or a tra- you know, or a train engineer with a magic lantern. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Hawkman is another alien space policeman rather than reincarnation of an Egyptian prince and all that sort of stuff. You know? Yeah, the Golden Age was very magic based, but Silver Age definitely sci fi based and. It's just really peculiar and just really stands out as something that's really odd. Mm. So the next letter says, Dear Editor, the inside art of Flash 167 was brilliant. Some of the best I can remember seeing since the late 50s. And the main reason for the superior quality, or should I say superb quality, since the Flash art is always superior, (laughs) is the fact that you have Sid Green doing the inking this time round. In my opinion, Sid Green is the... Best inking artist in the entire comic mag field. Wow. High praise. The stories in this issue were both good. The Flash lead was the best, of course. <laughs> I was actually surprised it turned out so well. Plot-wise, that is. Usually tales with little supernatural entities thrown in emerge as stumbling attempts at cute humour and succeed only in alienating long-suffering readers. But this was a perfect blend of just the right degree of good-natured humour. Oh my goodness, really? Plenty of action set into a good solid crime story background. Give Gardner Fox an engraved gold medal for coming up with one of the best stories of the year. And that's from Robert Jennings. I've got a friend called Robert Jennings. I don't think it's from him, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a distant relation. That's a very interesting take in that letter. I mean, it's opinion seems definitely split, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting he's talking about Sid Green and him being on The Flash because he's only just recently come on. Right. You can definitely see a change in Carmine's artwork through it. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if he's starting to head toward that looser style. Yeah. That I know you really can't stand. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That he had like in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. When we did the Elongated Man stories, part of Zatanna Search, there was a definite shift in it all but then but I mean obviously we when we did the 1966 JLA JSA team up, we talked about how good the artwork suddenly looked in comparison yeah. to previously Mike Sikowski yeah. penciled yeah. stuff and Sid Green was the inker on that so maybe Sid Green is the, has the magic touch yeah. it's interesting because it didn't really feel like a Carmine story no apart from the little Carmine hands in a few caption boxes yeah. it didn't really look and feel too much like a Carmine so maybe you could say that maybe Sid Green is a little too overbearing IDK the artwork was fine I don't think it was the best artwork I've ever seen in a Flash story but it was okay no, I really enjoyed it. I thought the the look of Moppy was great. Uh, it, it really captured the, the, the goofiness. It was and, funny, uh, yeah, it yeah. was. Interesting. There's one final letter I'll quickly go through. It says, cool. Dear Editor, the real origin of The Flash proved to be very unsatisfactory. Mm. I opened up the magazine and closed it again in disbelief. Yep. I thought to myself, has DC flipped? Putting little runts <laughs> in green robes and having them come from <laughs> Cloud9 or, or wherever... Just wasn't DC. I believe the lightning bit about Flash's speeds, but a green-clad dunce from the initiate 10th class? <laughs> yeah, never. Even though the chances of the lightning origin were 10 quadrillion billion against one, I believe it, because the chances against a little guy from the sky doing it are 10 quadrillion billion and one to one. Anyways, I've seen lightning, but I've never seen a moppy. If I ever do see a Moppy or a Joker that looks like him, I will write a letter of apology. Just as stupid as this one. And that's from <laughs> Bill Ray. I, thought, I actually thought he was going to say, if I do see a Moppy, I'm going to punch him. I honestly thought he was going to say. 
I don't think Bill saw a moppy, or else we might have come across this letter of apology in a future issue. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listeners, have you ever seen a moppy writing and let us know? I'm not really a fan either of stories that sort of say the new origin of, or you know, uh-huh. hitherto unknown details. Yeah. Everything you knew is wrong. Yeah. I'm not a fan because inevitably they always get retconned back to what they were originally anyway. Uh-huh. I'm trying, I mean, I think I've made the example before. Did you ever watch Sliders? Yes. Incredibly formulaic, but also very enjoyable because the cast were also good American TV series in the late 90s. Yes. Sliders, I think, when it hits, I think it's fourth series, had this big sort of retcon thing that Jerry O'Connell got this massive info dump that sort of said that he wasn't just a, a very clever basement inventor, he was actually the son of two blah, 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 and all the stuff about, you know, the sort of ape men type thing from the other worlds and stuff. And it totally rewrote the premise of the series and made it just a bit, oh, okay. It kind of took away the charm. Mm. And, you know, I'm not a fan of of it being done. It's It always seems at times like it's a writer wanting to come in yeah. and make their own play of something. And I wonder what Gardner's motivation was for doing this. What made him want to tell a story or to change things for The Flash? Well, Gardner is a big fan of goofy humour as well, especially in The Flash, because his favourite character right for The Flash was the trickster. Mm. And he would put in as much daft nonsense as he could because he really enjoyed the humour of it. But this is just so incongruous to The, the Flash. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't sit properly with The Flash that we know. One thing that's interesting is if this does take place in a world that isn't Earth-1, mm-hmm. Then what story is Barry flashing back to that features Jay and Vandal Savage? Because if it's the same Jay from Earth 2, has he had the same adventure with two different Barrys? That's a really, really good point. Because if you want to look at it that way and just say that, for argument's sake, Jay didn't have the same adventure twice, then that means that this is the Earth 1 Barry. Or there's another Earth 2 that's very similar to the Earth 2 mm-hmm. that is like Earth 32, where this story is allegedly taking place. Yeah, that's also a valid interpretation, I suppose. I mean, because it is a multiverse. Mm-hmm. It was a series of infinite Earths. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a, that's a really good point, that, because that makes it a little trickier to, to just write it off. I mean, you you know, uh-huh. it requires a bit more sort of thinking to try and tie that up. Yeah. Wow. I mean, looking back at it, he does say, nor could I help save the Earth itself, as, as happened from Flash of Earth 2, and I... The, the implication then is is that it's clearly the regular Barry Allen, and it does have a footnote and does mention Flash One Three Seven: Vengeance of the Immortal Villain as the story that's being discussed, and that was mm. the Flash of Earth One. Mm-hmm. This makes it difficult to retcon this as not being the the Earth One Barry that's involved in the story, yeah. and it makes it difficult to then retcon this as not being the real origin <laughs> of Barry Allen. It's, tr- it's, it's it's a tricky one, mm-hmm. unless this is just a point of divergence. Could be. Maybe they had stuff in common, or oh god, I don't know. That's a can of worms you've opened up entirely there, Peter. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> or perhaps Moppy is just like some interdimensional trickster kind of character who's just having a lark with the Flash. That's a possibility. It's kind of like the Doctor being half human in the Doctor mm-hmm. Who TV movie. They kind of swept it under the rug and didn't really mm-hmm. come back to it too much until you know the whole Meta Crisis thing in Donna's last episode. It's interesting, because I think reading the story and taking the, the flashbacks into account, you know, when Barry's sort of thinking about how things might have been different if he hadn't been the Flash and stuff, it's clear that this story, the intent of the story at the time, was that it was a full, regular part of the Barry Allen canon. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the response, they've probably just gone, right, well, you know, let's just forget about it. And so yeah. probably for the safety of our sanity, we should probably just forget about trying to <laughs> reconcile it too. 
Well, of course, when you get to Flash issue 300, which is that great issue that covers the entirety of Flash's history, there's not a single panel where Moppy turns up and says, oh, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting idea, the, the idea of a story just being struck, right? No, we're not having it. Bend. Yeah. I wonder if they ever got a letter saying, whatever happened to Moppy? When's Moppy coming back? <laughs> Quite possibly. That would be amazing. We've seen Carrie Bates didn't bring him back during his like 120, 130-odd issue tenure on it. Uh-huh. That's true. So for all his championing of Moppy, he didn't seek to bring him back, even in the flashbacks in Flash issue 300 that he wrote. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Fortunately, Moppy never comes back. Uh, <laughs> That was going to be my next question. Uh -huh. Does Mopey ever get referenced again, ever? I think he appears an ambush bug, perhaps. <laughs> but right. that's okay. But no, he never comes back in the pages of The Flash. Interesting. The thing about Mopey is he's a particular kind of trope of character as being kind of magical helper, extra-dimensional being, helper or antagonist that yeah. most of the main DC heroes had at this time. I'll run through mm -hmm. a few just now because... Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when you actually look to see how much of a trope it was. Obviously, one of the main mm -hmm. ones is Batmites. Yes. Who first appeared in Detective 267, which came out in March 1959. His first story was called Batman Meets Batmites, surprisingly enough. I love Batmite. I remember him very fondly from the, the 1970s Batman cartoon. Yes, me too. Uh -huh. Which we got at tea times here in the UK. It used to be on before Doctor Who. That was my first real exposure to Batman. <laughs> And I remember Batmite as being slightly unearthly and a bit, you know, oh, you know, very interesting. And I've seen, you know, I've seen since that he's not really quite as out there <laughs> as he was to a five-year-old, but that's not the point. Yeah. He's definitely mm -hmm. a character that I think kids are going to like. Maybe that's what they were trying to do with Moppy, but I don't know. Yeah. He only had 15 appearances pre-crisis. I actually thought it was going more than that. I could only find 15. Wow. Okay. But yeah, obviously there's been like miniseries and stuff since. There was a really interesting Legend of the Dark Knight story that featured him, which is great. But pre-crisis, which is what we're dealing with, I can only really find 15. Aquaman had a character called Quisp. Yes. Who first appeared in Aquaman issue 1, uh, which came out which came out in November 1961, called Invasion of the Fire Trolls. He originally was from, and I quote, The Secret Sea Beneath the Ocean. Gasp. Wow. That was later kind of retconned into being the same dimension that Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt comes from. And of course, Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt is another type of this trope as being, you know, the all-powerful sure. magical sidekick uh, helper mm -hmm. uh, to an existing character. Quisp only had six pre-crisis appearances. However, post-crisis, he was a big baddie. It was revealed in Grant Morrison's GLA series. That rings a bell. That was the GLA-JSA crossover. The one that guest star Captain Marvel? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, I take full credit for some of the things that happened in that story because I remember talking to Grant at a Comic Mart and sort of <laughs> saying, I see you're doing a JLA JSA crossover quite soon. What are you going to do given that there's not very many members of the JSA left mm -hmm. and the Spectre has gone to heaven and all that? And are you going to do anything with Captain Marvel? And Grant said, Mark Wade's got a plan, I'm not going to touch it. And then, so when this story rolled along <laughs> and they addressed the fact that Jim Corrigan wasn't there and he got Captain Marvel in, I was delighted. I was like, oh, Grant, thank you. There you are. Anyway. And thank you for maybe being the inspiration for that. Because <laughs> it was a great story. It was. If we keep going beyond Crisis and Infinite Earths, that would be a fun story to look at. Yeah, definitely. Wonder Woman had a character, actually Wonder Tot, Wonder Woman as a toddler, right. had another character 
who was a similar kind, who was called Mr. Genie. Yeah, that rings a bell. Mr. Genie originally appeared to Wonder Talk when she found a, I think it was a lamp, on the beach in Paradise Island, and rubbed it as you do. He got his powers from his turban. Yes. But who knows where he came from? But yes, he originally appeared in Wonder Woman 126, which came out in September 1961. He had five pre-crisis appearances, and I don't think mm. I've seen anything with him since. I've either got a very old issue of Wonder Woman that, that features Mr. Genie, or I've got something that reprints him, but I'm definitely familiar. I definitely recognise him. Yes. And next up, Martian Manhunter had an interdimensional powered sidekick called Zook, who originally appeared in Detective number 311, which came out in November 1962. And that issue was called The Invaders from the Space Warp. Wow. Now, Zook stayed with John Johns for the rest of his detective run and all the way through his House of Mystery run up until his penultimate issue. Uh, he kind of vanishes on the second last issue because the last issue that John has in House of Mystery, he's dealing with taking down Faceless, who's been the big bad throughout the whole thing, and Vulcan, that's the evil organisation. Uh, and Zook is there right in the second last issue, but he's not in the last story at all. And he's not seen or heard from again. And there, he's, he's not written out in any way, he's just not there. So we don't know. When you said that he vanishes, I thought you were going to say he vanishes in a heartbreaking moment in the same way that Quizlet vanishes from Legion of Superheroes. Ah, no. When he's just gone in, a set, gone in the space of two panels and you're like, what? But instead, it's kind of like the way the Overmind vanishes from the Defenders after being such a big part <laughs> of it and the focus yes. of several stories. He disappears between issues and there's no mention of it. Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Zook came from, and I quote, a parallel world in another dimension. <laughs> oh god <laughs> so we're going to have to do every single Zook story <laughs> no <laughs> Zook had 28 appearances pre-crisis <laughs> <laughs> oh no 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 we might do a flashback story at some point just to cover a Zook story but we certainly won't be doing 28 of them that's a thought actually because there is something that we have to address with the Martian Marlinto at one point Interesting. Zook wasn't really magical in nature, it was just extra-dimensional. He had some powers, he could do some size and shape changing, but very limited. He could control his temperature, so he could like be incredibly hot or incredibly cold and have this wave of heat or cold coming out from him. He had antenna that he could use to sense disguises or for limited tracking abilities. He was quite a fun character. Is he sort of orange with a sort of quiff? Yes. Yes, that's him exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I've, I've seen him in a few comics here and there. Of course, the main type of this trope is Mr. Mixelpetlick. Mr. Mixelplex, as I always call him, because it's easier to say. <laughs> the original Golden Age version was called Mr. Mixelpetlick, and he originally appeared in Superman issue 30. That was June 1944 that came out. Mm -hmm. In a story that was called The Mysterious Mr. Mixelpetlick. Now, he had 20 appearances pre crisis. However, the Earth One version is the winner by far of all these. Mr. Mixius Pitalik, notice how they're both said differently, originally appeared in Superman number 131. That came out in June 1959. And his first story was called The Menace of Mr. Mixius Pitalik. He had 62 appearances. Bloody hell. Right all the way up to whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. That's right. So, yeah, he's definitely the winner by far. We are going to see him in the podcast. Yes. But we're not going to tell you when, because that would spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> he will He will appear eventually. Uh, there are a couple of honourable mentions I'd like to give. Green Lantern, for a while, had like a, a pet kind of alien starfish called Itty he used to fly around with. That's right. 
Yeah, of course there was Prote and Prote 2. Of course. Mascot of the Legion of Superheroes. And then Space Ranger had his sidekick called Krill. Of course. But Moppy certainly is the only one that Flash had. Yeah, I mean, I can't lie. If Moppy had popped up again, I don't think I'd have minded, but it's such a contrast from what we got in Showcase issue 4. And of course, obviously... There's a story way, way off in the future, which we might or might not do, which addresses the source of the lightning bolt that strikes Barry in his laboratory. And I prefer to go with that version. The letters that we read there, they were very balanced. That's just the letters that they chose to show us. <laughs> Was it like 95% negative and 5% positive? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I suppose it speaks for itself that Mopi never returned in any stories and, you know, and hasn't been used since, I suppose, really, doesn't it? That's true. In fact, this story is so disliked by certain aspects of fandom that uh, Craig Schutz of the Comic Buyer's Guide created an annual Moppy Award uh-huh. for Silver Age stories that really just didn't fit into continuity or were just too ridiculous. <laughs> Outstanding. Jumped the shark. Yeah, pretty much. And basically one stories that once were published were pretty much written off. Like right. the Superboy story where uh, Jor-El and Lara turn up. That's that's one of the winners. Uh, there's the Daredevil issue where Daredevil wraps up his civilian clothes and turns it into a basketball and starts bouncing it. That's a, one of Moppy Awards. Right. Daredevil issue three, I believe. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Blame me. <laughs> yeah, so it's not just limited to DC. The Moppy Awards ran throughout the, every year throughout the Comic Buyer's Guide. And I think they might still be going online. Uh, so, yeah, check that out, folks. Interesting. Well, that probably wraps it up then, doesn't it? Why don't you tell us what story you think should get a Moppy Award and we can give it an Earth 2, an Earth 2 Award, an Earth 2-y. <laughs> Please let us know. You can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you check out our social media because we'll be putting up lots of extra material on there. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast, and on Twitter we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. We certainly are, yes. Please do get in touch and please do have a look at Facebook and Twitter and see all the, the extra contextual content that we're offering because it's pretty good if I say so myself. Yes. <laughs> so on that note, I've been Peter. And I've been David. Join us next time for The Real Origin of The, the Earth, Earth 2, 2 Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. Yeah, so he wears a sort of glean, 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 glean. I should have, I should have said those days instead of these days. Let me try that again. Okay. If I, actually, if I just say those days, can you cut that in? No. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon from Big Finish Production. <laughs> <laughs>